What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. You're listening to the Fade to Bay Network. <laughs> we invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories. Through nuanced conversations and forward thinking and not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing. But not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fade to Gray Podcast. I'm Elizabeth. Oh, yay. We're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. again. I'm joined with... We never left. I'm joined with Omar and Seth tonight. Uh, today, hey whenever you're listening. And we have a special guest today. We have Kifa Ar- Arkimont. Let me try that again. Arsimont. Arsimont. <laughs> now I was teasing was the close. boys. Kifa Arsimont is here. And we voted you as most likely to say the name correctly. I voted myself the intro, and then so I stuck job. my foot in my mouth or my hand or something. All right. So we are... Something. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk with Kifa today said. about his time with the cult House of Yahweh. So, Kifa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and thanks for being willing to share your story with us today. No problem, Elizabeth. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, and we're coming right off the hills of our marathon weekend of podcasting. Um, this is... Saturday and uh, I guess it'd be a week ago today, we were just starting the evening section of Big Tent Revival and we kicked that whole thing off. If you guys remember with Rick Allen Ross, who is a cult expert, we talked about our experiences and religious backgrounds growing up, deciphering whether or not we were in cults. And this guy, uh, Kifa, definitely sounds like he was in a cult and he's doing his best to expose the things that he saw while he was in there. And we were kind of catching up po- or pre-production. And um, I'm really excited for you to tell your story. So what is the House of Yahweh? Well, you know, the House of Yahweh, when I first heard about it, it was part of the sacred name movement that was going on in uh in the 70s, 80s, uh, I heard about the name Yahweh back in like 75. My mother was going to churches and uh, I went to live with my grandparents and she calls up and says, hey man, the, the name of the creator is Yahweh. It's not God. I'm like, wow. Okay. So I took a bus. Well, what type of churches were you going to growing up then? My mom was a hippie. So, you know, when I was growing up, I, I was experiencing, you know, she had me at 14. So she was quite young. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, by the time she's 21, I'm what, seven, you know, so I'm, you know, we had a built-in swimming pool. She'd have all the hippie friends over smoking weed and skinny dipping in the pool. And, you know, just, it was a really free lifestyle. And then around, when I was around 11, a good friend of hers, uh, Margaret Andrews, her dad had died and she started getting religious, you know, and, and so she got in touch with my mom. It's funny because one minute I watched my mom, she's doing tarot card readings, learning how to do tarot cards. The next thing you know, we're going to church. So it's kind of like. That's a switch. 
Yeah, it was. It was a switch. It really was. Real quick switch. Too. I guess it depends on which church you go to. I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I do. It does happen for people, though, especially yeah. uh, when it's cult-like. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I went to a Baptist school for my, my, my elementary education up to about seventh grade, okay. Mid-City Baptist. And so we went to that church first. We went to Mid-City Baptist. And, you know, it was, you know, I was about 11, 12. You know, before that, I don't ever remember going to church, actually. Uh, we were raised Catholic, but not not church going Catholics. And so when we started going yeah, to church, Southern Baptist, huh? Yeah, so you know, Southern Baptist. It was a uh, you know, you had so- socialization and starting to read the Bible, and it was interesting. So uh, by that, let's see, she kind of started searching. Though it's like they went to church, and then she was like, the next thing I know, uh, we were there probably a year, and then all of a sudden we're going to other different churches. I remember us going to like a Holy Roller church, you know, I call them Holy Rollers, you know, Pentecostally, speaking in tongues <laughs> and flailing and falling on the floor. And I'm like, holy crap, when we left, I was hoping, I was like, we're not going back there, are we? She's like, no. I'm like, oh, golly, thank God. <laughs> it just wasn't, wasn't what I was, you know, at that age especially. So we kind of went through a bunch of different churches. It's like she was searching, and then uh, the next thing you know, she found out about the Sabbath day that the seventh day Saturday is supposed to rest. And so we started going to seventh day Adventist churches. And mm. uh, from there, Ooh, those are strict. What's that? Those are strict. Well, L- it was Ellen G White's teachings. You know, they had, they had a prophetess, you know, and uh, I can remember going door to door, you know, for the missionary stuff and trying to tell people about, you know, the seventh day Adventist church as a young man, I went to Ozark Academy, which was uh, in Gentry, Arkansas. It's like right in the corner of Arkansas, right? Oklahoma. And uh, when I got back from that, I was, what, 14, going on 15. And, man, I tell you what, I, my dad got killed when I was seven. He was in the Army. And so I didn't really have that father figure in my life. And I was out of control. <laughs> That's the only way I could put it. At 14, I was out of control. So my mom, I, you know, I, I'm thankful I had some good grandparents. So she sent me to my grandparents. And uh, from there, I kind of lost touch with my mom, you know, like, as much as, you know, I mean, I wasn't living there. And uh, she would always send me stuff, though. And then she started telling me about the name Yahweh. I went and checked that out. And I was like, okay, that's it's real. You know, it's the real deal. And then I got put on a mailing list. She, uh, back then, it was the in the middle mid-70s, you had a really kind of a revival going on. People were kind of coming out of Christianity, searching. And you had this, what's called the Sacred Name Movement. So there was uh, Assemblies of Yahweh in Michigan, uh, they had one in Pennsylvania with Jacob O'Meyer. They had some in Missouri. And they were really starting to really spring up and pop up all over the country. Did this go hand in hand with the Jesus movement? Not really, because the Sacred Name movement, they felt they had something different to offer. They were basically a mixture of Old Testament and New Testament. In other words, they, they taught that you had to keep the laws. The Jews, the Jewish people have what they call a Torah, which is 613 laws, statutes, judgments, commandments. So they would take that. And then they mixed it in with, they didn't call him Jesus, they called him Yahshua, which is kind of funny because they, this movement was started like, okay, we've got something special here. We're, we're reading Hebrew and we, we, they, they thought they were interpreting everything correctly. But what's kind of funny is that now it, with, with the knowledge I've, I've learned over 40 years of being in and out. There's no wise, yeah. <laughs> well, the, actually, Jesus is a more proper interpretation uh, for Yeshua. Yahshua was actually a man-made word. In other words, the sacred name movement, they were really hung on as Yahweh, you know, yod heh the Tetragrammaton. So they felt like every Hebrew name had to, if it had yod heh in it, it had to be Yahweh or Yahshua. 
So they created this name, Yeshua, which is really not even a biblical name. I mean, if you can't, if you talk to a scholar, a biblical, uh, a Jewish person that understands biblical Hebrew, anybody for that matter, they would tell you, well, that's not even, it's a man-made word. It's like Jehovah, you know? So what I started to do is I went, uh, I was re reading the literature and I really never went to any of their feasts because they used to have a feast in the fall called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's funny because then, you know, uh, I didn't go, but I kept reading the literature and then, oh, let's fast forward. I was 22. Uh, well, yeah, I got married at 22 and my wife was Catholic and I wasn't going to get married in the Catholic church because I did believe in the name Yahweh and I felt, well, we got to be married in, in, in my faith, you know, and uh, which really I didn't have a faith because I wasn't going to any kind of church or anything. I had searched around and tried to find different groups, but it was a very small group, you know, it, it, like say in the city of New Orleans, you might have had, uh, there was one group that did use the name Yahweh, you know, out of what, thousands of people that went to church and stuff. So make a long story short, we wound up, I called a friend of ours, Margaret, who had actually talked my mom into going to church, you know, 10 years prior. And she told me about the house of Yahweh. I went over there to spend a Sabbath with her, me and my wife and my two kids. I had a, a two and a four-year-old. Uh, and the next thing I know, I was like, oh, well, this is cool. Let me read this stuff. And the next week when we came back, a bunch of people that I had known, uh, from years prior, they were going, they had just came back from the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread. And so I just started reading it. We went to the Feast of Pentecost, which was in the fall. I mean, not in the fall, it's in between uh, the, the, the spring and the fall feast. In fact, Pentecost is like next week. So it's like 50 days after Passover. And uh, we got baptized and wound up, once we got baptized, I was 87. We moved. I was a firefighter in New Orleans. I, I got hurt on a job, so I retired. And in 89, December 89, I moved to, to Texas, and I stayed there till I uh, just moved back to Louisiana in December this past year, 2019. So I was there for 30 years. When you moved to Texas, you moved to the house of Yahweh, I guess, had a compound, would you call it, or... What, what, what were they doing there that people were moving well, to the house, there? Well, in 87, the, the, most of their ministry was done uh, through the National Enquirer of all places. They used to have a little wow. ad. And, and, and yeah, you had a religious section. Talk about red flag. I mean, come <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know? uh, but they had a section in, in, the, in the classifieds where they had a little, like, three-liner. The creator has a name, yet most people don't know it, and, and, and why aren't your prayers answered? And you write in for a free booklet. So they were advertising in that. And why aren't your prayers answered? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and get and, everybody for that one. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Of all the sacred name groups I could have went to, I went to the most dangerous one. You know what I mean? Because like in the 90s, we were listed in Newsweek magazine. Uh, well, you guys weren't drinking Kool-Aid, though, or wearing the Nike. We, so. we were pretty, you know, it got, it, right, right now, they're pretty much that close. But back then, uh -huh. we weren't, you know. At least the Kool-Aid we were drinking didn't kill us. How about that? Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about this. So yeah. you ended up joining this church, which was the House of Yahweh. You mentioned several events that kind of happened around this. Um, was it like going to any other church? No, like, no, not at all. Because so, yeah, so let's so so there was a definite difference when you when you walked in. So so tell us what was that like, and how old were you when you first went? I was twenty seven. 27 and you had two kids i had two kids my wife my first wife uh, sandra was uh she was four years younger than me mm -hmm. uh, and our boys were two and four 
so when we went there, we met a lot of people our age. They had kids the same age as our kids. And it was like, it really was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life when we first went there. Cause it was really, everybody was, uh, all kind of searching the same thing, trying to explore the Bible and find the truth in the Bible. And all these young people, we were all, we had a lot of energy. We were very, I would call it gung ho. I mean, we were just really fired up to spread this message. And, and, and of course, you know, the, the leader of the cult, uh, Yisrael Hawkins, he was a very dynamic speaker. He was just a, fifth grade educated Okie, but man, he was, uh, uh, he was just dynamic in the way he spoke and the way he put scriptures together and me not being really literate of the script. Cause I really, the only Bible I read was like I said, when I was 11 years old, a King James Bible. Uh, I didn't have any experience in theology. I didn't go and really try to understand what the Hebrew, how it's written. Cause if you know anything about the Bible, you've got biblical Hebrew. And, and you've got modern day Hebrews. There's two different things, you know. And so uh, to really understand biblical Hebrew, you really got to get in depth into studying the language of the day. And of course, we use like I've got books here in my library. You can't see them. But, you know, I've got Strong's Concordance, which is a basic concordance. But I've got some really good lexicons that are written by you know, scholars from, you know, rabbis and stuff that were scholars in their day of the 1800s. And so if I'd have done more studying, I probably wouldn't have stayed there very long. But that was the thing. We were caught up in the emotion of it, the, the newness of it. Um, it was different because we had the feast. So, you know, three times a year, you had people come from all over the world. I mean, I met people from Australia, England, uh, France, Italy. I mean, and all over the United States, too. And it was, and it was multicultural. There was, there was no prejudice. We had black people. We had white people. We had Vietnamese. And it was – everybody was considering themselves brothers and sisters. It was really – uh, easy to get caught up in. How's that? You know, in the early '80s, that would have been really rare to have that diverse of a collection of people in community. Oh, we had white uh, supremacists that actually converted. They were called posse comitatus, and wow. some of them were elders, but they were like really, they were racist before they came to Osceola. So when you seen and heard their testimony, like they're not racist anymore, it's like wow, people really have love, and it was like the Bible was kind of like coming alive for us, you know, because like we're really mm-hmm. not prejudice we weren't racist we weren't anything but just trying to be to, to live by Yahweh's laws and try to preach that to the world it sounds like a utopian to me it was. or a utopia type society so where is the danger well the danger was the first minute I walked in because I didn't know anything about psychology either and I've come to learn that Yisrael Hawkins is a sociopath uh, I mean, if I had a dictionary with psychotic personality, I would want to have his picture in there because it was like walking into Hitler's Germany without realizing it. Because at first, Hitler's Germany probably seemed really great to the German people. Um, it's like any cult, the Jim Jones, David Koresh, it started out in its infancy very innocent. People didn't realize how dangerous he really was. Now, his wife did, but she never told anybody because she got caught up in it, too. And... Uh, Years later, she wrote a book. If, if you read her book, if I would have read her, if she'd have wrote that book before I came in and read the book, I would have never went. But, uh, you know, when you enter the world of a sociopath, it's a very dangerous thing, a psychotic personality, because they don't have love. They don't have empathy. Their goal is to manipulate, control, to have power. And, of course, with power, they, of course, with a religious organization, he had money, too, because the money was coming in. You know, we paid... 10% of our earnings, which was called tithe, 
we had a second tithe, which was to get you to the feast. Well, eventually he started taking that second tithe and said that money had to be spent at the feast. So he had 20% coming in. And then there was a teaching every third and sixth year of a seven-year cycle, you had to pay third tithes. So he was getting 30% of people's money every third and sixth year. And he was using the Bible to, through his translation, <laughs> to show it and prove it. He actually, the first year I got there in 87, Tabernacles of 87, we came out with our own Bible called the Book of Yahweh. And I have a copy if you wanted to see it, but it's it basically he took it and he replaced all the names of Lord and God with Yahweh, um, which was a big, you know, if you showed it to a scholar, the Book of Yahweh, they'd laugh on the very first verse. Because in the very first verse, it says, in the beginning, uh, in the King James or, or Hebrew Bible, it would say Elohim, or in, in the King James, it would say God. Well, he put Yahweh. And, you know, five, ten years ago, when I was talking to someone that knew Hebrew, they said, well, wait a minute. You can't change the Hebrew word Elohim to Yahweh. You can't take an Alaf Lamed, uh, I think it's uh, Hey Mem, something like that. And, and change it into yod heh wah -Hey. And that's what he did. He did it throughout the whole book, though. And so uh, he had his own little brand of, of Bible translation that we kind of got lured into it because he would use source books. He would use Strong's Concordance. He would use Gesenius Lexicons, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of well-renowned books to show how he was translating stuff. The problem is if you don't, understand the rules and the, the grammar of the language, you could read that and think, oh, yeah, this makes sense. But to the untrained eye, it, it made sense. But to the trained eye, they look at that and go, well, wait a minute. He took that out of context. This is not what that word means in this verse, you know. So that's one of the things he got us on. And his big doctrine was that God is a pagan word. You can't call the creator God is it comes from the Canaanite word El, which was a Canaanite deity. So he kind of set up his own doctrine that no one else really had. And that's what kind of lured people in. It's like, wow, he's using the name House of Yahweh, which if you read any Bible, anytime you find the word House of God and replace it with Yahweh, he had a House of Yahweh, and he was the only House of Yahweh that was in the United States or really in the world because he had it copyrighted. He copyrighted the name. He got it, uh, went down to, to the you know, state legislature, uh, I mean the corporate, uh, Texas corporate corporations and filed the corporate charter for House of Yahweh. So he had all these little things that just, I always say everything's about timing. You know, Jimi Hendrix, when he came on the scene, it was about timing. Uh, you know, the Beatles, I'm using musicians as a Bob Marley, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, well, Yisrael Hawkins was just at the right time. You know, you had this convergence of Christianity and you've had this sacred name movement that was trying to show, well, look, we've got something more special than Christianity. And at the time it was growing. Like when we came there, it was maybe 100, 120 people. By 95, we had like 1,500 people coming to the feast, you know, anywhere from 13 to 1,500, plus thousands of others on the mailing list. I mean, we grew so fast. So, Kifa, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here yeah, real quick, um, because I'm still trying to figure out how you were in New Orleans when you first found you first went to a house of Yahweh. Yes, but you moved to Texas because this is where the the guy lived who started the house of Yahweh. Well, what happened was we had an elder in Louisiana, so in other words, he would ordain elders in different cities. So we were called the Louisiana group because we had probably 
maybe 15 to 20 of us. You know, we had about four or five families. We had an elder, so we actually were able, on Sabbath, we'd have services at, at, at one of the members' houses, and the elder would give sermons. And so, okay. Did you he, still he have to of, give your tithe to those elders, too? No, actually, that's what the weird part is that, you know, you would think the money would be able to support the group in Louisiana, we'd be able to tie there, but all the money always went to Abilene. It was always funneled to Abilene. And, uh, and the money wasn't given to the elders. The elders basically, you know, I became an elder in 89. I, I mean, I was there from 89 to 2008. I never got paid. It wasn't no salary or anything. It was just volunteer. So when you were there in Texas, though, were they housing you? Oh, yeah, let's go to that. Yeah, so what happened was when we moved in 89, I had bought a trailer on what's called the 44 acres. That's where the compound is now. Well, at the time, it was just one of the members. It was his daddy's farm. His dad died. It was his farm. And I said, hey, I'd like to rent a little acre here. I put a mobile home there, and I fixed it up. And when we moved there, that was our house. Well, right after we moved, maybe six months later, the the member, I didn't know he was in financial, you know, dire straits, you know, he, he and he wound up selling the property to Israel Hawkins. Well, I think Israel put it in the house of Yahweh. He decided that's where he was going to build a church. And I tried over the years to try to buy the property. He would never sell it to me. But he let me build a house there. And I built two houses, actually, because uh, I eventually got into a polygamous relationship. And I had another house for my wife, my, my wives. And so, uh, so I had built there. I had pretty much put my roots there. I sold everything in New Orleans, my home there. Um, I am trying to understand, so I want to back up, and I okay. know you're kind of doing this now, and so I kind of you already provided a little bit of this answer, but I want to I want to construct this a little bit. So, because you shared, you started 27 years old so when you went to the first house of Yahweh. Yeah. You had your wife and two children. So, yeah. is this like just like a normal? And I asked you, like, was this like going to church? You were like, no, it was different. We kind of talked about why, like what was different. Like, did was this weekly services? How did you get from going to services to living in a unit like that? You know, what's the progression there? Yeah, we never left, lived in a unit. We actually I always had my own house. You know, I had my own place. Uh, so what happened was how it was different than say the normal churches. Most churches, you go to church once a week. After that, the place is closed down until the next Sunday, right or right. Saturday. Where the house of Yahweh was open seven days a week. I mean, we had services ah, on Saturday, but okay. we would also have classes on Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday night. You were, and then we had we were printing so much stuff. I mean, we, by the time we started printing the book of Yahweh and the booklets, and we had an outreach ministry that was just phenomenal because everybody was volunteering. So you had we had a workforce of you know fifty to hundred people that was just pushing us. And I mean, they were devoting, like me at the time, I was retired and I was devoting eight, 12 hours a day to, to the ministry, you know? So they kept you busy, you know, and, and, and you were always doing something. So Okay. So now that, now that we got that, now you were working in Louisiana. No, no, I retired. I retired off the fire department. I moved to Texas. I was just living off my pension. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So I was basically volunteering for the House of Yahweh. And then when mm -hmm. they moved from Abilene to Clyde, which is this Callahan County is just, you know, a bunch of farmers and, you know, agriculture and stuff. He builds this compound. I call it a compound. It looks kind of like David Koresh, the way they had this, you know, this building that they keep. They've, they've added on it so many times now. If you go Google it, it's like this massive building with all these add-ons. And now when I moved there, the 44 acres was just, you know, they had wild turkeys in the back. You know, I'd, I'd shoot turkeys out my, out my kitchen window, you know, but – as they started growing, I mean, you had 
campers everywhere and 18 wheelers with food storage. And now it's just like, it looks like a little city sitting on 44 acres, basically. So what happened was when we moved, uh, well, I said when we moved there and once I, uh, I built my house, I basically was rooted there. I mean, it was like, I, I felt this is where I'm going to stay until the kingdom comes. Now, what's interesting in 87, he said we were just about to enter this seven-year tribulation. So this seven-year tribulation was supposed to be started. We started getting in food. We were really getting into food storage. I mean, when I left, I had an 18-wheeler packed with food storage. I mean, literally front to back. I had a little alleyway you could walk down. I had shelves. Um, you mentioned David Koresh. Were you guys buying up uh, assault rifles and stuff as well? You know, back then we we really weren't. Uh, in fact, shooting turkeys. Yeah, well, I had a twenty-two, and I grew up in Louisiana, <laughs> duck hunt and stuff. You know, yeah, I, we're I in Western Pennsylvania. Again, yeah, yeah, you know, so I had a twenty-two, a four ten, a twelve gauge, and uh, they never really promoted anything like that. In fact, we were anti-violence. Uh, you know, peaceful. We were never told to buy guns back then. It changed later on. Uh, around the late 90s. Uh, that's when we were encouraged to start buying guns. So, but there were people who had guns, you know, because you had the Posse Comitatus people that they had lots of guns. And they, from what I understand, because I wasn't privy to some things, especially that they had guns. They just kept it on the lowdown. So nonviolent. Well, in 93, when David Koresh, when, when that happened, I can remember going to, to Israel and saying, hey, I'd like to go over there being another elder or two and, and see if we can go talk to Koresh and stop this, this shootout that was going to eventually, well, I say shootout, they eventually, you know, everything got totally <laughs> suicide mission there, you know, but uh, he wouldn't, he didn't want to get involved in none of it. He's like, no, that's not our fight. But we were also, we thought the FBI was going to come in on us. So we had to, we were on high alert. You know, they were, I remember one time uh, this guy, Robert Moshe, comes out there and puts a garbage truck and a bunch of vehicles to block the back entranceway. And it, it kind of got me mad because it's like I had this stinking garbage truck in front of my house there. And uh, <laughs> But, yeah, you know, we, they started to get paranoid. When, when David Koresh went down, he told us that we were probably – in fact, after it happened, he said, well, we were spared. They, they were supposed to come after us, but they went after Koresh. Whether he was spouting a bunch of bullshit, I don't know, but we were definitely – Concerned because you had Ruby Ridge right before that. You had, you know, uh, David Koresh, and it, it just really didn't look good to be part of a, a religious organization that we were listed in Newsweek as one of the top 10 cults at that time. So, and, and you know, while you're there, you, you know, you're looking at it like, well, why does the world hate us? You know, I mean, we're just peaceful people. We believe in Yahweh and we really were trying to do good things. Uh, the problem is we were being led by a psychopath. So, <laughs> It, you know, it, it didn't come till later on that you really started to see. What were some of the examples of his personality that would make him a psychopath? Well, let's, let's crack that egg. There was a story in 90, I think it was 94, 95. We were on Texas, in a Texas monthly magazine. They had a famous photographer from, from New York come over there. Her name's Mary Ellen Marks. And she took a lot of the black and white photos. And it was a like big spread. And the thing about a psychopath uh, one of the things that I, I noticed when I read the Texas Monthly now, at the time I didn't see it, but he used to take cats. This is one of his relatives who said this. He would go take cats, kill them and skin them, and go sell them to the black people and saying they were rabbits. Uh, so when you read about a sociopath, they have these type yes. of, they don't have any love for anything. You know, uh, a sociopath is the type of person, and, and, and look, Kay wrote in a book that he would actually stand in front of the mirror and, and practice crying, you know, like, 
<laughs> you know, so he, when he got up on a pulpit and he was like, <laughs> you know, giving one of his emotional speeches, he was fake crying. Well, a sociopath, a psychopath, that's what they do. Like if they come upon a scene, let's say there's a, a wreck and a mother's grieving because a kid just got hit by a, a bike. You know, most people looking at the mother grieving, he's looking at the mother on how she's acting and how she's crying. And he goes home and practices that. And that's what he would do. He didn't really know how to cry because he didn't have, uh, sociopaths don't have the same, uh, something defective in their DNA. They don't have love. They don't have empathy. They don't have feelings of compassion. So they have to basically practice it. And of course, I didn't notice too much many years later, you know. Uh, once I left and I started going, what the hell was I involved in? What was, who is this guy? And that's when I realized what he was. And it really helped me to, to deal with the emotions I was feeling at the time because I really was going to put a bullet in his head. I mean, that's how upset I was about the whole place. And once I realized that I was following a sociopath, I was like, well, golly, you know, he didn't twist my arm. I, I went there willingly, you know. What is it that he did that made you so upset? When you say you locked away and you were angry, yeah. like what? What is that? What well, happened? I went. We're th- skipping the whole two ofs, but yeah, okay. yeah, let's, yeah well, we come back to the, we come back to two ofs. <laughs> oh, we're talking about two thousand and eight, okay? Um, when he got arrested, he got arrested, and he was in jail for about a week or two. When he got arrested, I came home from work and I, I turned on the news at five o'clock news, and here's the thing, you know, my name, Keith Arson. Well, actually, at the time. We actually all took the last name of Hawkins, so it was Kiefer Hawkins. I'm seeing my name on on the news along with my wife's on a an indictment for bigamy, and I I looked at my wife. I was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to jail just because I have two wives, you know. So I left for about a year, two years. I left when I saw that. Within two days, I was gone. I mean, I told my I went to my first wife, said I'm I'm leaving. Are you coming? She said no. I went to my second wife. We've been together now for 25 years. She said, yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. Packed up the bags. She just had a baby a week. Well, the baby was like three days old, actually. We packed up everything. We had five girls uh, from the ages of three days old up to like 11 years old. And we just packed up and left. Wound up going to the Philippines, went to Israel, came back to the States, waited for his trial to go you know, find out what was going to happen. It took him two years to basically, it wound up he got off the hook because uh, they didn't have enough money to prosecute him. He had some really good lawyers. I mean, the dude's worth millions, you know, hundreds of millions. And so he bought, he got the best money's money, uh, best lawyer's money could buy. So when I came back, the whole issue about what had happened was one of his elders got arrested and he's in jail right now. He's got 30 year sentence for, uh, using a clavicle, vaginal clavicle tool on a non-member family member. So in other words, he took a tool and used it on his stepdaughter to examine to see if she had STDs or if she was a virgin. I don't know all the details because I really didn't. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. So that's it, sexual abuse. Which it's sexual abuse, need, exactly. Which would need to be reported by a, by a mental health professional, and, and I hope yeah. that it was. So so that's what really upset you? Sounds like he went to jail for it. So <laughs> I'm getting to the story. What got me upset was when I came back, I tried to show that they were saying he was innocent, that he was, you know, not, I was all made up and fabricated. And I had done a little investigation. I said, no, it wasn't. The dude got caught, you know. And so they kicked me out for that. And that's what got me mad because here I was 20 years. Of, I was loyal. You know, I mean, I was an elder. I, I did what I was, you know, I didn't, I don't think I did anything illegal that I know of, but 
I, you know, because they had so many elders. We had like, when I left, there was almost 50 elders. And there was always this passage they would passage they would use out of the New Testament. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. So if you've ever been involved with a sociopath, they size you up and they're always looking to see how they can use you, what they can use you for, how they can manipulate you. He knew I wasn't one that would toe the line all the way on any on everything. So I was kind of spared all the gory details of what was going on behind closed doors. Uh, and so when I got kicked out, it was like in the middle of the feast. They just didn't let me back in. I got two houses on the property. I can't go back to my houses. I've got all my possessions, everything. And so that got me pissed off. It really did. And, and what got me pissed off more than anything was that I was trying to just do an investigation to find out, okay, this guy gets 30 years, you know, was he guilty or not? I mean, everything I had seen looked like he was guilty for sure. Now that I look back, back on it now, he was set up, really. This is the elder you're saying was set up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, he got 30 years. I mean, people can kill someone and don't get 30 years. People rape girls and little children don't get 30 years. This guy got 30 years for using a tool on a stepdaughter. Not, not that I'm saying there's anything right with that, but golly, 30 years? Something smells kind of fishy there, you know, but... I'm not going to sit here and argue with the judicial system. But what I'm saying is now that I look back and I've examined it a little bit more deeper, it's been 12 years since I left. I got kicked out and 12 years since the, the, the elder got arrested or 13. Um, now that I've looked at the whole story, I feel he was thrown under the bus because it was after he got arrested. Yushua got arrested a couple of months after that. And the county had spent so much money taking care of this guy, Yadidia, putting him in jail. They didn't have enough money to prosecute the big, the big guy, you know? And, uh, of course, he's so manipulative. I knew when I saw my name on TV, he was going to throw me under the bus, too. Uh, anything to protect him. He didn't care. He, he'd throw his own children under the bus. And he, in fact, some, uh, one of his daughters committed suicide about five, six years ago because uh, she had mental health problems that I think was inherited from him. You know, she was... Uh, I mean, the guy's, a, you know, he's a snake in the grass, you know. You meet him in, pu in person, and he seems like a really cool guy. But, golly, he's the most dangerous person you could ever want to meet, at least for me. I, I could only compare it to somebody sitting in a concentration camp that had to deal with Hitler or someone that was at the compound with David Koresh, you know, or Jim Jones, you know. How did he convince you to marry two women? I mean, I guess... No offense, oh. you're a guy, and guys like women, yeah. but well, <laughs> like, yeah. how did that happen? I'm not gay, so Walk I do like women. Walk me through that process. <laughs> what happened was in 93, I had started to teach school. At, we had our own school, and there was a girl there, which is now my wife, and she was uh, 15, 16, and I thought, golly, this girl's so beautiful, and she was just a personality. and we just, I actually went to him and said, look, I got to quit teaching school, man. I'm having feelings for this girl. And I was actually going there to let her know I want to quit. Plus, I need some counseling here because my mind's starting to wander. At the time, people were bringing this stuff up, too. We had classes. Remember I told you about the classes? And people were bringing up, uh, they used to call it multiple marriage, which is polygamy. It's basically, they brought up passages in the Bible. You know, King David had wives and Solomon and Moses. And, and so this was starting to become like a hot topic. Well, when I went in his office, man, it was like he caught the big fish. Woo! Because as soon as I told him what I was going on with me, he was like, oh, well, no, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and I'm like, what do you mean? I said, what about, you know, there's passages in the New Testament where it says an elder is supposed to be the husband of one wife. 
And he goes, oh, that's mistranslated. I'll have David Verno, who was the resident scholar, I'll have him give you a copy of the, the new translation, right? Or the fact that she was 16 is also a huge problem. Well, oh, geez. I, yeah. That, yeah. But she looked 20. <laughs> you know, she really did. My wife looked older. <laughs> so, but at the same time, I'm sitting there going, hey, I need, co-. yeah, you know, today I'd be considered a pervert, I guess. But we got seven children. We've been married for 25 years and we love each other. So, but I didn't marry until she was 18. So to, to, to let you know on that. Um, yeah, but d- just the fact that your your leader is encouraging you to pursue something like that with yeah. a child that's but that you're supposed to be in charge of, you're leading her. She's a student. So, I, hey, I apologize. I mean, I, that, that story alone is enough to like. Let's get this guy out of fucking power. That's yeah, right. and that's the, the, the that's the sad part about this place because I've had to live with so much guilt throughout the years. Just the fact I got a son that ain't talked to him in twelve years. He's still there. He's an elderly. He totally. You know, That's cut sad. me off. I got grandchildren. I couldn't even tell you one of them's name. I don't, I don't even know how old he is. He's, I think, around two years old. Uh, the other one I haven't seen in 12 years. I don't even think I'd, if he saw me, I don't even know if he'd recognize me. I don't think he shows pictures of, of me at all to, to my grandchildren. Aww. But, you know, that's a, that's another thing in itself. It's, it's kind of, that's the guilt you have to live in being in a cult like I was. I brought my children at a young age. My oldest boy, he woke up about four or five years ago. I kept working on him. The other one, it was just hopeless. I mean, he was—he uh, wouldn't talk to me or anything. Are these from, so, from your first wife, those two kids from yeah, your first wife? Yeah, my first wife. And, of course, it destroyed my first marriage. You know, my wife, uh, it, it was hard on her, of course. You know, I mean, here I come home and say, yeah, hey, I'm in love. At the time when I, we finally, you know, realized that this was going to happen, she was around 17. Because I kind of kept it. I was, you know, there wasn't no court per se, but at the right. same time, we would talk and we would, you know, spend a little time together. We, and when I finally told my first wife, it, it was devastating to her, you know, and she stuck around. I, I got to give her kudos. She didn't leave. She could have probably said, fuck you. I'm out of here. You know? Yeah. Uh, oh, I hope it's not a family show. No, it's not at all. No. So, you know, she, um, she, she made the best of it. She really did. I mean, we tried to, it's hard to explain to a woman, how does a man fall in love with two women? You know, it, nowadays, you know, most people either have girlfriends on the side or they'll just divorce their wife and, and get another wife. And I didn't want to divorce yeah. my wife because I still love my first wife. It just so happened I fell in love with another one, another woman. And he used the Bible to say it's okay. And it yeah. was okay. I mean, we did it. I really today don't have a problem with people because they, they got sister wives on TV and stuff. I don't have a problem with that. Um, I just don't feel like the way we did it was right because yeah. it wasn't like my wife when we came there, she knew about it. She, this all got sprung upon us. So what yeah. he did with me is he let me give the sermon on polygamy because he caught wow. me, man. It was like, oh, he, he, he said, I could think, I could just almost imagine in his mind. He's like, all right, I got someone now that they're going to, they're going to take all the heat for this, which I did. Uh, and so of the people on that you are in the community that you are a part of, were you the first one to have a polygamous marriage or were there? No, no, no. Or, what happened so was, was that it, already happening with people on the site and you just followed along or did they follow you? Because you're asking like he kind of roped you in on it. So I'm like, are you the first one? with the He wrote me in to the- give the sermon because before that it was nobody was talking about it. But once I gave that sermon on July 24th, 1993, that blew the door open where, I mean, we had a lot of people leave because of that. Um, I'd say a couple of hundred people left, you know, um, and he came out with a book called 
reconsidering Yahweh's laws of marriage and slavery, which he tried to tie to slavery into it to show slavery is a righteous thing. Jesus and, Christ. And the marriages. Oh, man, I'm telling you, man. It, I've got the books on my shelf up here still. And you preached it? Or did he preach no, it? No, I, I gave the first sermon. And then after that, yeah. every week, every week someone else was given sermons. And over like a six-month, nine-month period, just about every week, every other, I think it was about maybe six months, because eventually he said, okay, that's enough. We don't have to speak about it. We wrote a book on it. Here it is. It's part of it. So anybody that came after 93, say 94, they knew that that's what the doctrine was. It wasn't a shock, you know. But all the people that were there at that time, oh, man, you know, it was a, it was a big shakeup. And I'd have to say probably had a lot of women that hated me at that time, you know, because they were looking at me, but really it wasn't me. I was just the spokesperson. He was the yeah. one that was pulling all the strings, you know. Is your first wife still there? No, she left uh, about three years ago and got remarried. Uh, in fact, when she, I didn't divorce her until she left. She left three years ago. We were actually still married up until three years ago legally because uh, with Karina, I didn't, I, I didn't marry her legally because you can't, that would have been, I would have went to jail for that. Yeah. Uh, that would have been uh, big of me for sure. Uh, so, yeah, no, when she left three years ago, uh, of course, you know, she had already made up her mind that she was going to find someone else in that. And I, I don't blame her, you know. It, I don't have yeah. any ill feelings towards my first wife. She don't talk to me. She, she probably hates my guts. But mm-hmm. um, really, you know, that's the sad part about it is because I don't hate her. I don't hate anybody there. Even the leader, I don't hate him. I, I just feel sorry that we got wrapped up in his world. And really, he's the one that is responsible for all of this. And I mean, I've had a sister-in-law that died in childbirth. That's another story in itself. She was basically murdered, uh, you know, because they let her bleed to death and wouldn't take her to the hospital, you know. And uh, so, yeah. So going back to that 93, 94 period, that was a big change in the house CR. That's when things started to really change. And what happened was his first wife, Kay, Man, as soon as I came off that stage, she came through the curtain going, she pointed her finger at me, you should set you up on this, didn't you? And me being the, you know, taking one for the gift, oh, no, okay, no, I had. Which he did. He, he set me up to, to give that sermon. And she eventually divorced him. And when she divorced him, that's when the lion was unleashed. In other words, he didn't have nobody anymore to, to keep checks and balances with him. He was wide open to do whatever he wanted to take full control, and the organization started going downhill from there. Uh, and when I say downhill, total control of a psychopath. I mean, he became the god. He's, he's basically a god now. I mean, in fact, my last feast there in 2000, uh, I left in 08, and I came back for like about, about, a, about a, I came for like two or three feasts before they kicked me out. And uh, we were up on a stage, and everybody – all the elders were told to bow down before him when he came up on the stage. And here I am standing there with 50 elders and all of them bowed down and I'm the only one standing there and all the cameras are on me. And, and so you can imagine what the people are thinking, holy crap, Keith is just standing. Everybody else is bowing down before the leader. So yeah, it was really, it was weird, you know? And so that's how bad it got. They literally, they worship him like Christians worship Jesus. I mean, he is their Messiah. He's their God. Uh, whatever he says to do, I mean, he controls every aspect of their life, what they wear, what they eat, how they think. They, they have to ask permission if they want to, they don't, they don't even take vacations, but if they wanted to, they have to ask permission to do anything. He, it, it went from this great organization, the polygamy came in, and now total full, it's a totalitarian state is what it is. It's that type of government. He is Kim Jong-sung, you know, it's like North Korea. He is the dictator. He is the one that says, 
what goes on. He's probably got a hundred wives and concubines and, and slave women that he, that he takes, you know, and he's got them under his headship, you know. What is it with cults and, and sexual perversion, right? It's, it's a sex cult is what it really is. That's exactly what it is. And I didn't see it at the time. I really, you know, looking back, me and my wife were just looking for a sense of balance and religion in our life. And of all the places we went, we could have went to the assemblies of Yahweh somewhere else and it would have just been like a regular church. But we wound up going to a freaking cult, which I'm glad we didn't go stop in Waco because I might not even be here. You know what I mean? I could have wound up at David Koresh's church or something, you know? How did hmm. your, so I'm, I'm curious though, how did your first wife feel when you added a second one? And how did your kids react to that as well? I mean, I'm curious because you had, you had kids with you too. So, I mean, I'm just dynamics. I like, how did that go? You know, my kids took it well because it was almost like the kids almost had like two moms because the way we lived, it wasn't no orgies, no, you know, menage a trois or anything. I mean, she had a, each one of them had their own house. I actually started to live out in a camper in an RV so that we all had our own space. And I would go from house to house. You know, I'd spend a d- couple of days at this one, a couple of days at that one's house. Um, the kids, they were, my boys were nine and 11 at the time, somewhere around there. And they took it well. I mean, uh, my wife, no, she didn't take it well at first. Eventually she accepted it because it was almost like she had a good, a best friend. Uh, however, the age difference was, was the big factor. If I'd have took a woman the same age as her, who knows? I mean, we probably most, I probably would still have two wives right now. I don't know, you know. Uh, but I know that for her, the age difference. And look, my wife, Karina, she was a beautiful woman. She looked like a supermodel. I mean, she was she was 17 years younger than me, you know. So to clarify here, so, yeah. so for you, you feel as if the reason she would be upset is the age difference, not the fact that it was just a second wife? I think the age difference had a lot to do with it because I think she thought that she was maybe not as attractable, you know, to me. And that was, really wasn't what, I mean, no one's, you're the first person to even ask me that question, I think, you know. Uh, it wasn't about the fact that my first wife was dissatisfied to me. It was just the fact that, I don't know, I mean, think back when you were a teenager, you know, you had a couple of girlfriends, baby, you know. I mean, when I was a teenager, there was a couple of girls that I liked all, you know, two or three of them. And I dated them different ones at different times, you know. Uh, of course, as you become an adult, you're not supposed to do that, right? Mm-hmm. I never had, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I've never, uh, once I got married, I never had any girlfriends. I know, I mean, I did have two wives, but I've only had two women in the last 30 something, 40 years. You know, I mean, it wasn't like I was a swinger. I wasn't, I didn't have 50 girlfriends on a side or anything. I didn't take it to that extreme. Not to say that I wouldn't have took more wives if, if I would have uh, maybe thought through it a little more. I tried and then I, I, I backed off from it. We've had poly couples and swingers and stuff on the show before, and mm-hmm. um, and obviously that's something that they've discussed and something that you know both couples have consented to. And it seems like a lot of times there's always a dominant one, especially in the swinger couples. That it's kind of, and the other partner's kind of like, oh well, I love you, so I'm going along with this. Um, yeah, it's just this is this is definitely something different, and obviously. Because, like you said, your wife never signed up for that, you know, and she no, never. She did. No, she didn't. No, and and in the situation at this cult, where you like, where else is she gonna go? You know, so she could have went back home, but you know, she loved me, and, and I did love her. I mean, I told her, look, you know, I don't love you any less, and that's why I was telling you I didn't do. I wouldn't even hold hands with either one of them in, together. Never kissed it 
one of them in front of the other. I mean, I tried to make sure to eliminate the jealousy as much as possible. And that's what was the big factor was the jealousy. I think with my wife, you'd have to ask her personally, but she, I, I feel it was the, the age factor. And I think she thought that I was just one of the younger women. And it really wasn't that. It's like, I don't know how to explain when you meet someone and you fall in love with them. It's, it's, it's hard to explain, but it happened. It happened to me with two women, you know? And uh, I did take them as wives and I did love them both. I mean, I tried to, if I bought one a car, I'd buy the other one a car. I, I built the one a house, I got the other one a house. I, I, um, if this one got a nice dress, I got the other one a nice dress. I tried to be fair because they were always, always comparing, you know, especially my oldest wife. She would look if she's seen Karina with a, a nice dress, then she would want a nice dress. So I was like, okay, whatever. You know, I wanted, I tried to make it as, uh, I guess at the House of Yahweh, we, we were kind of the, the I don't, we can't call us a couple. We were the triplets that kind of was like an example to everybody else. And we tried to be that, you know, especially being an elder. They were eldest wives. We tried to set a good example for the people that were looking at us. Yeah, there's definitely layers there for sure. And I yeah. mean, it, it's it's obviously easy for anybody listening now to make snap judgments, you know, listen to your story, looking at the age, looking at, you know, how oh, you treated course. your first yeah. wife. I mean, and be like, you know, this dude's a piece of shit. It's easy. It's easy for to, to, to make those snap, to make those yeah. snap judgments. Hey, um, I'll admit I was, I mean, I take, I take, I accept full responsibility. Well, that's, that's good. And yeah. I guess that kind of ties into the question because I look still more to the leader as taking responsibility in that because like he was enforcing it, you know, he was encouraging it and, was. and you're in leadership too. So like, I do want to say, obviously he's a bigger piece of shit, but have you been able to reconcile any of this? Cause you're given sermons on polygamy. Like, yeah. have you been able to like recant any of the things that you've said, or do you still still think that was the right direction to go i mean you're still married which is which is respectable and you know sure. you're still a father and doing all that so yeah but we got seven children my second it's wife. a very nuanced thing here it's not seven like, children with your did you have any so two with your first and i then had two with my with, first wife and then my my first wife had a couple of miscarriages in the cult so we, i would have had more children and my second wife had a miscarriage too um but yeah, I've got nine children. I have two for my first and seven for my second. Yeah, we just started having kids. I mean, it was like crazy. I mean, I, we thought the world was going to come then. So it's like, hey, be fruitful and multiply. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I mean, we, uh, we've been together now. We just celebrated 25 years, actually, uh, back in April. So uh, I, I had to apologize to my second wife, too, because when I just recently, when I started, we started talking about these things, I realized that. I put pressure on her because I mean, a 17 year old girl, she wasn't looking for a 32 year old, 34 year old guy. You know, she was probably looking for someone her age. And, and I put so much pressure on her because man, look, when I, when I fell in love with her, it was like, that's, I wanted her and, and there wasn't nobody else going to have her, you know? And so I exerted a lot of pressure on her. I had to apologize to her even recently that I realized how much of a, uh, like you said, a piece of shit I was to, to put pressure on a girl like that. And, I could sit here and blame Yisrael Hawkins and all that, but, you know, I have my own mind. I'm a sensible person. I just, I let my lust get carried away. I let him feed it. If he would have told me, hey, no, you can't do this. You better stop. I, I would have stopped, but he encouraged it. And that's where he's guilty because he wanted it. He wanted to bring this, introduce it because he wanted to have as many wives as he could. And like I said, he's probably got 50 to 100 now. And he's 85 yeah. years old. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. 
But have you been able to, I mean, you're doing stuff like this with the podcast, which is, and I mean, for owning that, I mean, I have a lot more respect for you now and telling that story. Um, yeah. Yeah. What would you, have you been able to do anything else as far as recanting some of the statements or shedding light? And obviously you want to help you get that word out, but. Specifically to people who would have been in the cult when you were, with, when you were there, people that would have been following you. You know, no, when I, that's the thing about that place. Nobody really followed individuals that, other than Yisrael Hawkins. He's the, he's the leader. They followed him. They followed his doctrines. Uh, when I left, you would have thought, you know, being an elder, you know, the people leave with you. No, just my family left. In fact, not my whole family didn't leave. It was just my, my wife, Karina, and my five children. My other two children stayed behind and my other wife stayed behind. And they, they basically, uh, for years, you know, my, my other son just kind of woke up two or three, maybe four years ago. I mean, I didn't have much of a relationship with them. You know, I mean, especially my second wife, we didn't talk at all. And to this day, we don't really talk. I, I tried to reach out with her recently and, it's just so much pain and hurt there, not just with this, but there's so many things that were done there that people have dirt on their hands and it's hard for them to come forward and really uh, try to, because what I'm trying to do right now is to make people aware of this organization and that uh, what I feel bad for is the children. Adults have a right, uh, you know, free white, free, uh, what they, what's the old saying? In my case, it was free white and 21, you know, when you're 21, you can do whatever you want, free black and 21, whatever. And as long as you're not hurting nobody. But the problem is that, I, you know, most recently I was able to verify a lot of child abuse and a lot of child slavery that's going on. And I, I always heard about it, but I couldn't really confirm it. And, and recently I have. And it's like I'm on a mission now to to try to help these children that are there because they got children there right now that are, you know, they're getting molested. They're out there working in the fields, eight, 10, 12 hour days, six days a week, get, not getting an education. Um, a bunch of them that have left that are now in their 20s, there's several of them that have committed suicide, you know, and the ones that have come out, they're struggling, you know, they're struggling to fit into society because it's so dysfunctional. The places, uh, the women dress like Muslims. I don't know if you've ever been to their website, uh, but if you tune in, the women wear veils and they, they wear Muslim attire. It looks like you're walking into a, a Muslim, you know, uh, temple. Um, they separate. They've got separation to it. They've got a wall where the men and the women are totally separate. A man's not supposed to talk to another woman. A woman's not supposed to talk to a man. Uh, the, the, the type of mind control they have That's now, a weird sex cult, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, because <laughs> the only one that's getting the sex is the leader That now. you know, He's the only one. In fact, uh, just two weeks ago, I was told that they gave a sermon where they're, they're in the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, and they're saying no, they're not doing any marriages, so nobody can get married now, other than the, probably the leader. So, yeah, it's crazy. It, it, it's, uh, I mean, we're trying to cover within an hour 30 years of, of what I've seen in a place, and it's, uh, I would describe it today so close to, to Jim Jones and David Koresh and the fact of his toxicity and the fact that they could go on a suicide mission. Uh, more so now than ever before. And I know that they are, uh, they do have guns. Um, I think they're more of a danger to themselves than they are maybe anyone else, but still uh, with the leader being 85, he's getting a little slow in the brain. I want to call it senility or whatever. He's not sharp as he used to be, of course. 
there's going to be a new leadership that's going to take place when he dies. And I don't know if they're going to be radical, you know? Does he have kids? Who's proud to be the Oh, he's got leader? a bunch of kids. He's got 35, 40 kids, but... Is that kids of age or like one of the elders in? If you if you had to guess, he was or he were to die tomorrow, what do you think would happen to the House of Yahweh? I think the second in command is going to be this guy Shaul Snyder. Uh, he's probably going to be the one to take over, but he's got a group of people with him: Michael Sheets, David Verner. These are the old guys. There's a guy Benjamin Benjamin Krause, uh, who's kind of more radical than the rest of them. You've got Chris Hyla, Ilya Hyla. He's a uh, He's radical, you know, too. And I they think, all believe know. the same thing as far oh, yeah. as the child oh, yeah. child abuse and the sex well, slavery and stuff. You because- see, no, you know, that's the thing about the child abuse. It, it's this is the way they handle child abuse. If you, let's say you're a member and you come to them and say, "My child was abused," they're going to try to get your child some counseling from their elders' wives who are not qualified to counsel a freaking dog. You know what I mean? They don't have no training. They don't have degrees in psychology, and most of them will just pretty much sweep things under the rug. I'll give you an example. I talked to a girl recently, just here a few weeks ago. She said when she was there, she got raped when she was seven years old by a 15-year-old boy. And when she went to the counselors as a, as a young girl, probably seven, eight years old, they, they t- and the counselor told her, well, you just got to forget about it like water running down a duck's back. And when she told me that, I was like, that's the kind of shit that counseling they're getting these kids. You know what I mean? Instead of saying, what? You know, we need to call this guy. we got to report this guy to authorities, you know what I mean? And uh, which right now I'm hoping the girl's going to fill out an affidavit because I told her uh, I don't think there's any statutes or limitations on that when it comes with the Me Too movement, and I'm hoping that we could probably take this and do something. I'm trying to gather all the information of people that are telling me their stories, and we're gonna, we're, we're, we've been kind of running into brick walls with the local law enforcement and stuff, so I think we're going to take it on a public format uh, with, a, with a podcast. And then we're also going to try to reach out to people in a, uh, law enforcement that we hope can do something about this. Because some of these cases are five, ten years old. But if it happened five, ten years ago, I know it's happening now. And I've gotten a little bit of secondhand information that there's kids there. What happens to the kids once they hit 18, 19, they start realizing this isn't the kind of life they really want. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of them start leaving. But the problem is... You know, we're supposed to be in America. We're supposed to produce children to be productive citizens in society. And all the House of Yahweh is doing is producing children that they're lacking in skills, in education. They're having to probably get on the welfare system when they get out to get on their feet. So it's kind of burdening the system. You know what I mean? A lot of them need psychological help. All of them do. I do. You know, we all do. Anybody that went there and spent any amount of time. I mean, I basically did my own psychology on myself by trying to figure out what I did wrong. But you know, to sit there and say, I am perfectly 100% healed from that place. Never, you know, it, it's, 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 it's left an imprint on me, you know? Uh, and, and I'm speaking that in all honesty. Now, am I crazy? Like I was there? No. I, I mean, I've tried to go back to being a normal person, but there's not a day that goes by. I don't think about the place. I don't think, and especially knowing that the children, when I'm hearing these stories recently, yeah. it's just got me all fired up again. You know, that's why I'm talking to you guys. I want people to be aware, especially you would think in, in, in that community, Callahan County, it's in West Texas. It's kind of the old Wild West kind of thing. And most people, if they knew what was going on, they probably would be storming the gates right now. They'd be there with a bulldozer, bulldozing the gate down and going in there and saying, let's shut this place down. It'd be a riot, you know. It'd almost be like, a, like the old Wild West hanging. 
if, if they really, you know, knew what was really going on and, and they could feel the effects of how I feel about it. Because when I hear these kids telling me this, I remember them as little kids, you know, six, seven years old. And I, that's what I look at. I, I, I'm talking to an adult, but I'm looking at their, I'm, you know, I'm hearing them on the phone and their faces reminding me what I knew of them when they were seven years old, you know. And it hits home. It hits hard. It hits home, you know. Well, Kifa, um, we're rounding up you know, our time with you here. But I yeah. just wanted to, like, man, it's a lot. I, it is. I don't think that I, at the beginning of this interview, I took a de- completely different tone and then kind of realized, holy shit, because I was making jokes about, you know, you know, it's not like you guys are drinking Kool-Aid or wearing the Nikes, you know. And, and you yeah. said then, yeah. it's much more dangerous than that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No one's dying. But now... I'm like this has this became a very important podcast all of a sudden just just as far as getting the word out getting knowledge out and the fact that you're willing to tell your story in such a vulnerable way where like you know what you did was wrong too and like I mean yeah. potentially if you know they are going after people I mean you know they could you know, you could still be putting yourself you know out there oh. with vulnerability as well and so thank you for for being honest yeah. thank you for owning you know some of the stuff that you've learned from that and thank you for exposing this. Um, it's a big deal, Appreciate and I, I'm I'm with I'm with you, Kifa. Let's get this guy. What's his name? Because I haven't even tried to pronounce his name. I'm horrible with names. Uh, it's Yisrael Hawkins. It's spelled like the like the nation of Israel, but instead of having the I, he's got a Y in front of it, the Yod Yisrael, and he spells it instead of E L, it's Y L. So it's Y I S R A Y L, and it's the House of Yahweh. They've got. I don't even want to promote their website, but I'm saying they got right, a website no. and, and, and the literature and all that stuff, you know, if anybody was to get it, read it, they could see right through it. Now I'm surprised he's still in operation, but a lot of his, a lot of the people he's getting in now is ex cons. He's got a big prison ministry. This is an opportunity though, Kifa for a call to action too. So if someone's listening to this right now and they're like myself and they're like, dude, we have to do something to get this place exposed, shut down. Definitely. Um, what, what, what can we do? How can, how can somebody like this help? I mean, do we just call the cops and be like, hey, I just heard this podcast where they're talking about child abuse and it's happening right now. Go do something. Or like, is there something more practical, something we can do? Well, I, I think if people, you know, right now we haven't set up anything. I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm working on putting like a foundation or something together where we can get money to get together, uh, donations where we can help people that need psych. Because some of these kids, they told me, we need, you know, they're going seeing psychologists right now, but I think they need more focused psychology with people that are experts on cults, you know. Um, and I, I think they're getting help, but I could tell just by some of the pay- people I talk to, even the parents, they're really struggling mentally, uh, financially. You know, one kid worked there from the time he was five to 14, eight hours a day, six days a week, and he's got problems with the way his muscles and his bones had had the way he grew because he was doing manual labor for, from the time he was five to 14. Um, you've got some that have been sexually abused. They need counseling. They got some that got crimes that I'm hoping that we can get a class action suit maybe against the organization where some of these people can get compensated. I know myself, I mean, they stole my houses and all that. I'm, I'm, it's not important to me as much as it is with the children, but I wonder though, just getting lawyers involved and going after the class action stuff would be enough to get attention to the other stuff that's going on. I don't know. Cause like it's, I'm with you. I mean, counseling, yes. Help for victims. Yes. But how do we shut the place down? Like without it, you know, burning down without another Waco. 
I need someone to go in undercover. If someone would be willing to do that, that would be awesome. Now, they, they screen everybody really carefully. But uh, if you can get someone in there to really see what's going on now, that would be a help. Um, also, I think that once we, we get a pod, because I'm working with a guy right now that they're, they, they're gonna, we're going to put together a podcast to bring public awareness. I'm also trying to get the people that were ex-members that have had things done to them, sexual abuse, slavery, child labor violations, we're getting them to try to put this into an affidavit, get it notarized, and then we're going to try to, you know, get them to present it to the authorities. The problem what you have in Callahan County is you've got this little county with farmers and stuff dealing with a thousand member cult in their backyard. So if someone dies there, they don't approach it like a murder. They just approach it like, okay, the person died, but I would say everybody that dies there, anybody that dies there, it should be suspicious. It should be considered a crime and then until they prove it otherwise. So the county needs money. They, I'm hoping that maybe bringing public awareness, the, the state of Texas will take notice of this. You know, In other words, this could happen anywhere in, in the country, and it is happening. Uh, last time I checked, there's over 5,000 cults in America. So I think that even though you have the freedom of religion, that doesn't mean you have to have this thousand member cult in your backyard in this little bitty, you know, backwards. I say backwards, you know, it's a little community, you know, farmers and stuff. It's not a big city like Dallas. And so you don't have the, the proper training by law enforcement. You don't have the, the proper forensics and, and the proper coroners that's needed to investigate how did this person really die? You know, cause there's people dying there that I think they're murdered myself. I, uh, I, I know one in particular for sure. That's my sister-in-law. And I've got that case all put together. I'm going to present that uh, to the, I've got to figure out who I've already talked to the law enforcement there. I've talked to the, the assistant DA. I mean, I've went up the ladder. I've talked to the Texas Rangers. I've talked to the FBI local. And, and the thing that I'm worried about is that it seems like nothing's getting done. And I'm starting to wonder, well, how far does this money go? You know what I'm saying? And I don't want to accuse anybody of anything, but, so when, when things aren't getting done, you start to wonder why, you know what I mean? And so I don't know how far down the rabbit hole this goes. I'm hoping that it's just a little ice, you know, this, it's just this cult and that's all it's about. If you start getting other people involved in law enforcement or, or public officials, that's when you start really getting into some dangerous stuff. And you know, in America right now, they got, you got pedophile rings, you got sex trade, slavery, going on. You got sex trade going on all over America. And to me, the House of Yahweh is perfect example of it in a religious content. So if there are people listening who maybe have been part of House of Yahweh or maybe could help you in some way with this, how can people get a hold of you? They can contact me uh, on my on my uh, the website, uh, themanbehindthename.com, www.themanbehindthename.com. I've got a phone number. I give my phone number out. I don't have a problem with that. Um, it's on the website. I, I can tell you right now it's 402-218-9530. I'm not ashamed to give out my cell. I've got an email, uh, kefa613 at gmail, K-E-P-H-A 613 at gmail. And if there's any ex-members that are listening to this, that uh, I just need their stories. I need them to, if they've got a, a good case that they've got against the House of Yahweh, um, I think that if we can put all this into an affidavit and package it together, uh, it's possible we can maybe talk to a good an attorney, or if it's a criminal case, we can present it to the proper authorities. For people that just want to help, if they want to donate right now, uh, I don't have a way of doing that unless they, you know, I don't want to even say I want to accept money right now, but 
give us time to get something set up. We'll probably put it on the website and then they could. Do you have a mailing list on your website? No, I don't. I, I've kind of got a basic site. It's just basically more of an sure. educational site to expose, okay, here's the House of Yahweh, what they say. This is what I know of the place. And I've took my 30 years of knowing all these people and investigating and put it on that website. And you just trying to get know, the word out right now, basically. Yeah, yeah, to get the yeah, word okay. out and, and just to let people know that this place does exist. And if, you know, especially people that are new trying to learn about it, if they come across my website, they can go, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, I didn't know this side of the story, you know, so they, they kind of get both sides they of the story where before, yeah. yeah, before it all they had was him, you know, and there was no way to find out. Well, if, if they did enough digging, they could find out the guy's a crook because there's enough news articles, but they're very smart. They got people there that they take the website and they push all anything that's against them, opposing, and it goes further down the pages. So they got people constantly working on their site with PR, you know, public, and he's got millions of dollars to do that, you know? Yeah. Well, it has been an honor having you on that's an honor to be i appreciate you guys i mean i um your vulnerability and willingness to share the details of this has been great um and Sh- I think it was shocking you know it's hard not to like yeah like to like it is want to tune you out be like oh this dude but then but like but no he's telling his story he's owning up to this so well yeah. you know i'm ashamed of uh, that i was there i got caught into a trap i got i i, I landed into the lap of a psychopath and that's a dangerous thing. There's a, there's a documentary called I Am Fishhead, and Peter Coyote narrates it. I, I suggest anyone that goes to church or anything and they, they're questioning their pastor, check out that documentary so you can see if your pastor or your, or your leader is a psychopath. And, and look, most of uh, politicians, you know, and CEOs are, are, are sociopathic. So it, it, it's not... It's not just limited to religion, you know. And, and shout out back to Rick Allen Ross. Check out yeah. our our Facebook Live or YouTube videos where we spoke with him. And apparently, Rick Ross has tried to expose House of Yahweh as well. We were talking about that. Yes, yeah. In, fa- in fact, uh, I reached out to him about a week ago, and he did put a link. He said on my website up there, and uh, we're, we're actually trying to connect with some other groups that are that are uh, funded to see if they can help some of these people out, you know, whether it means getting a lawyer or getting psychologists to sit down and talk to them and help them, you know, because some of these kids are really, they've been, they've been dealt a serious blow in their life, you know, it's going to take them a lifetime to recover. And some of them are doing good, some of them aren't. The adults too, man. I appreciate you, man. And if there's anybody in the house of Yahweh kids that are listening to this, I want them to contact me because we'll get them out. That's another thing. I don't, see, they forbid people to listen to anything with me. I'm like the, the son of Satan to them and they've already warned oh you know, don't listen to him don't listen don't, don't go to his website so if they're listening to this I want to let them know there is hope and we will help you we will find uh, we will have the means to help them get out if they want to get out they got my phone number now you know and they got my email all they got to do is reach out I'm on Facebook thanks man you bet. appreciate, appreciate you. you guys thank you for your time you bet thank you, thank you. This episode of Fade to Great was brought to you by our Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash fade to great podcast to become a member today. Head on over to fade to or any of our social medias to find out more information. Thanks for listening to the Fade to Great podcast.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.